morning. Good morning. Is this working? If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open to the book of Romans. Uh, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 8 this morning. Uh, we are continuing our series through the solas of the Reformation. Uh, these five Latin slogans, which were the rallying cries and a summary of the theology that came out of the Reformation. And today we will be looking at sola fide, which is uh, the teaching of justification by faith alone. And as we uh, to look and see the real beauty and the, the splendor of this teaching, we're going to be looking at the book of Romans um, uh, because the book of Romans plays a large part in the Reformation, and it speaks of the topic of justification uh, a lot. And it, we'll see that it also played a large role in the life of Martin Luther himself. So many may know uh, that the book of Romans is really uh, Paul's exposition of the gospel. Uh, he starts in the very beginning of Romans 1.16, by explaining, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then we move along with Paul uh, through Romans as he expounds upon the universal sinfulness of man. And Romans 3.23 he briefly states, for, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul tells us the bad news before he moves to telling us the good news. And he expresses this good news of the gospel strongly in the remaining section of chapter 3 um, as he unpacks the, the nature of saving faith and of justification. And we read Paul's simple summary of justification in Romans 3.28, where he writes, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In simple summary, that is the heart of sola fide. Which brings us now to chapter 4, where we'll be uh, looking at today. And this is where Paul puts forth the example of Abraham as the man who was justified by faith alone. Now, as we look at this text this morning, the central key biblical truth that we'll look at is this, that God justifies the ungodly, not by works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, and therefore we must believe and look to Christ alone for salvation. Now, let's read Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. Hear now God's holy and infallible word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, 
but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to look into your word and to see the beautiful truth that you justify the ungodly by faith alone. Lord, help us to understand your word. May you impress it upon our hearts and our minds. May Christ be glorified this morning. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. When you woke up this morning, did you fear the wrath of God? I would suspect that the answer to that question is most likely no. Uh, We in our culture, in our time, often do not think about subjects such as the wrath of God. We often don't think about death and may and what may come after death and therefore thinking if we will one day face the wrath of God. We in our culture try to shield ourselves as best as we can from the reality of death. But this was something that was very much on the minds of those during the 16th century, the time of the Protestant Reformation that we are uh, looking back to. Um, The historical setting of the Reformation in the 16th century was one of widespread disease uh, that was rampant. Often, families would need to have ten live births in order to have one child live into adulthood. A century and a half uh, before uh, Martin Luther lived, the, the plague known as the Black Death had swept through Europe and wiped out a third of the population. A third. Just uh, imagine, take a look around at the people here and just imagine a third of us just just gone. That was what happened during this time. So death was a very present reality for people during the Reformation. And this was the world in which the Reformation took place and in which Martin Luther himself had lived. And so people thought about death more regularly. They thought about the wrath of God. And they did so because the scriptures also talk about this subject in detail. Romans 1.18 states, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We also read in John 3, verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So this, this is the dilemma, this is the plight of fallen man. He has sinned against a holy and a righteous God and is thus deserving of his wrath. So how can man have a right relationship with God? This is the fundamental question that 
haunted Martin Luther during the Reformation. And this is why the subject of justification is so important, because it deals directly with that question of how sinful man can be made right with God. Well, what exactly does justification mean? I know I've been throwing around that term, um, but it may not be clear to all what exactly I mean by that. So to define it in its biblical context, in its as simplest of forms as I can, to justify means to declare righteous. So simply put, to be justified means to be declared right with God by virtue of the work of Jesus Christ. And Romans talks a lot about this issue, this issue as well. So Paul in uh, Romans chapter 3 gives his in-depth explanation of justification. And then in chapter 4, he begins talking about Abraham, uh, the man who is justified by faith. And as we look at Romans chapter 4, Paul's uh, line of thinking is really nicely laid out for us. Uh, it, pre- it presents us with a really good two-point sermon. Um, verses 1 through 4, uh, Paul expounds that justification is not by works. And then in verses 5 through 8, he posits that justification is by faith alone. Very nice two-point Uh, So let's jump into this first point here, uh, that justification is not by works. So if you look at uh, verses 1 through 4, Paul begins this section by raising this hypothetical situation, this hypothetical question in uh, uh, verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So many Jewish interpretations have stressed the importance of Abraham's works as really the essence of his right standing before God. So Paul is going right after this, this assumption um, of the Jews that in his audience would have had. And he's, he does this by, again, positing the question. And he, he's really trying to get at the fact that if Abraham really was justified by works, then he would have some sort of grounds for boasting. You know, it was something that he had achieved, it was something that he had done, uh, and therefore God should reward him. But this was something that earlier on in Romans, if you look, if you have your Bibles open in front of you, Romans 3, verse 27, Paul explicitly rules this out by saying, well then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. So he's already addressed what the first issue with this hypothetical situation first issue is that Abraham would have room for boasting, but Paul's already said your boasting is excluded. That's the first problem that we come across. And to drive his point home even further, he adds this uh, statement at the end, but not before God, which reinforces the fact uh, that Abraham could not have been justified by his works. So Paul is for the sake of argument, going with them and saying, okay, I'll go with you and say, if Abraham was justified by his works, one, he would have room for boasting, which I already said is excluded, but two, this could never be the case because before God, who can boast? The God who created and sustains the very universe that we live in, who gives us life, breath, and everything that we have, could never be put in a position to owe man anything. 
the very breath that you and I are breathing right now is a gift from God's hand. So we could never put God in a position to uh, be in our debt and to say, God, I've done this, therefore you owe me this. So this argument that the people here were putting forth falls apart uh, in Paul's analysis. So Paul closes the door here on any form of boasting. And he not only shows the, uh, the fallacious thinking of this argument, but then he posits to his audience how Abraham was justified. So it's, it's, it's not enough that he showed, okay, this is uh, not the case, but then again, here is how he was justified. And how does he do this? He does it with a simple appeal to Scripture. Verse 3 states, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now this is a quotation of Genesis 15.6, and it is here that Paul simply rests his case. He, he does so by appealing to the Word of God. There was no higher standard that Paul could have appealed to than the very words of God himself. Which raises an interesting, uh, there's a scriptural principle here going on that Paul appeals to uh, scripture, which reminds us of, as we've been working through these solas, the first one we covered was sola scriptura, that the scriptures are the sole infallible rule of faith. There's no higher standard uh, that the Christian has. Um, and Paul here is uh, evidencing something similar to that. Um, which is a great reminder of when we're studying these solas, they do flow and cohere together. Um, sola Scriptura is where we, we, the Bible alone reveals how man must be saved, and it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in and by the work of Christ alone, all for his glory alone. The solas fit together, and they're one cohesive system and we believe they are so because they're what Scripture reveals. And we had read earlier in Ephesians 2 that it's by grace through faith. So again, reinforcing that fact that these solas cohere and flow together. So as we continue looking at uh, Romans 4, Paul, in verse 4, uh, uses a illustration to try and uh, reinforce his point even further. And the illustration that he uses is one that um, I think a lot of people here could relate to because it's in the context of work. Um, verse 4, we read, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So Paul is trying to bring up the imagery of if you were to go to work, and um, your boss, say you go to work this week, your boss hands you your paycheck and says, oh, here's a gift for you. Well, firstly, you might want to start looking for a new job because if your boss thinks that he's giving you a gift by the work that you've done, you may not be there much longer. Um, and the reason why is because you've worked for that. You put in your 40 or 50, 60 hours, however many. So that, that's something that you've worked for, that you've earned um, it's not a gift. And that's exactly the, the imagery that Paul is trying to illustrate here, that whenever we receive something by a gift, it's not something that is owed to us. 
but it's sheerly of grace. As we've been working through these solas, we've uh, also focused on a reformer that goes along with each sola. And Martin Luther provides us with a unique example of someone who was trying to be justified by his works. His early life um, demonstrates this uh, very well and very clearly. So we're going to be looking at some highlights of Luther's life and showing how he came to understand uh, the gospel of justification by faith alone. So we'll begin with... uh, Luther was uh, born in 1483 in Eisleben, Germany. Uh, His father was a miner and wanted uh, Luther to study law. Uh, Law was a prestigious um, occupation at the time, one where you could make uh, a good living and thus support your parents in their old age. So his father pushed for Martin to go into the study of law at an early age. So in... uh, 1501, Luther begins his studies at the University of Erfurt, Germany, uh, in the study of law. And in 1505, at this point, in the early life of Luther, he goes through a crisis about every five years of his life. And the first one that we encounter takes place in 1505. So it's on a trip uh, back to the university after visiting his parents and Martin is caught in a, a fierce lightning storm. And a lightning bolt nearly strikes him down so close that he falls to the ground and he cries out, Help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. Now, St. Anne was the, the patron saint of minors, the profession of his father. So, Uh, Brother Martin would have been well acquainted with who St. Anne was as she would have been involved in the the religious uh, upbringing of him. So he cries out and he makes this vow that if St. Anne will rescue him, that he'll uh, become a monk. And so a little over two weeks later, Luther enters the monastery. And he does this um, without actually telling his parents. Uh, He sells his law books, which at that time... Uh, probably would have taken his father about a year's worth of wages to get. So he sells them without telling his parents, and by the time his parents find out, he's already taken his initial monastic vows. Um, I like to think of a a similar scenario today of, say, you have a young adult who uh, goes to his parents and says, Mom and Dad, I'm uh, joining the mission field, and I'm going to go to Africa. Oh, and by the way, the plane leaves tonight. Um, that's in a sense what Luther does. He uh, joins the monastic order without telling his parents. Um, and his father uh, is very, very angry at Luther. But as a monk, Luther sought to answer this fundamental question of how he, a sinner, could be made right with a holy God. So how does he do this? What's, uh, what does he try to do to achieve this peace? Well, the initial answer that he receives is, do your best, and God will not deny you grace. So what does Luther do? He does his best to be a good monk in the monastery. He, he fasts, he reads, he prays, he attends the services that went on. He, he would fast above and beyond 
the regular requirements of the monks to, a, to the point that Luther actually does permanent damage to his body uh, that he feels for the rest of his life because he was so devout in his practice. And again, he does this so strictly that later on he reflects upon his time in the monastery and he, he says that if surely if anyone was to be saved by monkery, it was I because I had gone above and beyond my brothers in the monastery. Luther was a meticulous student of the law of God, and he knew that he never lived up to it for even a second. So he struggled with this overwhelming sense of guilt, that he stood before God guilty. And that would lead him sometimes to uh, confess his sins. Every uh, monk in the monastery would have a father confessor that they would confess their sins to, and Luther does this, but you know, he doesn't confess his sins for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, half an hour, that's the same thing, uh, an hour, um, two hours, but sometimes three and up to six hours he would confess his sins to the father confessor because he was so overwhelmed with this guilt, even to the point where sometimes he would walk out of the confession and he'd turn back and he'd go because he'd remembered a sin that he had forgotten to confess. Um, now, I don't know about you. How much trouble can you get into in a monastery that would require you to confess your sins for six hours? Um, but apparently, Brother Martin uh, found sins to confess. Um, so again, he does this, but he never finds peace for his conscience And so in 1510, this is the next major crisis that Luther goes through in his life. Uh, 1510 is his pilgrimage to Rome. Now, Rome was one of the the two main cities that uh, pilgrims would travel to in that time, Jerusalem being the other one. And Rome housed uh, tons of relics that um, people could visit and by which they could earn uh, indulgences, by which time could be... uh, taken off of, uh, in purgatory for one's loved ones. So Luther goes here, and he is horrified by the corruption that he sees taking place. The the clergy in Rome are um, breaking their vows of celibacy and committing heinous uh, sexual sins with people. They would oftentimes go through the mass as quickly as they could, uh, up, to six time, up to six an hour, just so they could get through the mass, collect the coin, and, and hand out the indulgence. Um, so Luther is uh, greatly horrified by the corruption that he sees. But the highlight for Luther in visiting Rome was to visit uh, the Lateran Church, which was the, the main church in Rome before St. Peter's Basilica had been built. And the reason he wanted to visit this was because this church housed what is known as the sacred steps. These sacred steps were supposedly the steps that Jesus himself had uh, ascended before his trial with Pontius Pilate. They had been disassembled from Jerusalem and brought to Rome so that pilgrims could go and um, climb these steps. And what they would do, they would go up on hands and knees, and each step 
They would say, um, in Our Father or in Hail Mary or recite the Lord's Prayer, and they'd do this each step all the way up until they got to the top, and then they would receive an indulgence. And so Luther does this, and when he gets to the top, he stands up, and he says aloud to no one, no one in particular, who knows if it is true. Any hope that Luther had at that moment to find peace with God was dashed to pieces. And the, the doubt that he expressed would cast a shadow over his life for the next five years until we reach 1515, which again is the next uh, moment of crisis that Luther faces. So in 1515, Luther goes through what is commonly referred to as his tower experience. And this is possibly the most significant crisis that Luther goes through in his life. Uh, In 1511, Luther had began lecturing at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. Uh, So he'd been transferred from Erfurt to Wittenberg, and he begins lecturing at the university there, first lecturing through the book of Psalms. And then in 1515, Luther begins lecturing through the book of Romans. And he comes to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, what we had read earlier, and he's haunted by the phrase, the righteousness of God. And he's haunted by this because he knows that if God was to judge him by this perfect standard of righteousness, he would fall short every single time which is why he worked so hard in the monastery. But he could never satisfy the demands of God's justice. So in the summer of 1515, he is agonizing over this text, deeply longing to understand what, what does Paul mean by the righteousness of God and that the righteous shall live by faith. And then Luther begins to realize that The righteousness that is described here is not a righteousness by which a person achieves by their works, but a righteousness that God gives and is received by faith. So he writes this about his own experience. It's a lengthy quote, but I think it's it's helpful to really we get inside the mind of Luther and what was going on as he's wrestling with this text. Um, So I'll read this. Luther writes... I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him, Therefore, I did not hate, or I did not love a just angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is not that righteousness by which through grace is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God 
justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. So we see here that Luther's thinking is beginning to shift, beginning to change as he wrestles through uh, the epistle um, of Romans, as he begins to understand the nature of justification by faith. And in the winter of 1515, uh, Luther, we read in uh, Luther's commentary on Romans 3.28, he says this, For we hold, recognize, and affirm. We conclude from what is said that a man is justified, reckoned righteous, before God, whether Greek or Jew, by faith, apart from works of the law, without the help and necessity of the works of the law. So again, Luther is continuing to wrestle through how he understands justification. And his full thinking would be eventually put down in what's known as the Augsburg Confession of 1530, which many Lutherans to this day still use as their uh, confessional statement. But there were many other important events in Luther's life uh, that greatly impacted him. Um, and I wish we had time to, to really delve into some of these in detail, um, but we don't, so we'll just hit a few of the, the uh, highlights. I'd recommend getting that the book that Scott uh, recommended. It's a good introduction um, to these. Um, so many people all know of the 95 Theses uh, posted to the castle church door in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517, uh, commonly known as the, the start of the Reformation. We are coming up on the 500th anniversary, and that's why we're remembering these. Um, these theses that Luther posted were really points for debate that he wanted to debate against the abuse of indulgences that he saw happening. And they had originally been written in Latin. Latin was the language of the academy at the time. Most uh, common German folk would not have spoke or been able to read Latin. And it's not until a group of students uh, takes these theses down, they translate them into the common uh, language of German, and they give them to a German printer. And within weeks, Luther's thinking has been spread throughout all of Germany and is continuing to expand. And another significant point in Luther's life happens about six months after he posted the 95 Theses, and it's what's known as the Heidelberg Disputation, which took place in Heidelberg, Germany, in April of 1518. And this event is significant for a number of reasons. One, uh, Luther uh, presents more fully some of his ideas, and there's a young man present um, who becomes uh, infatuated with Luther's ideas and his thinking uh, by the name of Martin Bucer. And Martin Bucer would go on to be a great reformer of Strasbourg and have a significant influence over another reformer that we'll be looking at next week by the name of John Calvin. Um, so this, this meeting of, at Heidelberg is significant for how it would influence the future of the Reformation. 
And this is really, at Heidelberg, this is when, real, when Luther really begins to develop uh, his teaching on uh, commonly the, the law-gospel distinction that he sees and the nature of justification itself. Um, so it's a very important event. Uh, next, we know, many people know of the Diet of Worms in 1521. This is when Luther is summoned to appear before the imperial court to recant his writings and his works, and he gives his famous Here I Stand speech there. Um, and that would play a, a large role in Luther's life uh, going forward. I'd recommend you know, a good biography to fully expound upon uh, those things. But, so it's events like these in Luther's life um, that provide us a really clear example between the two people that Paul described in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. So before Luther's uh, tower experience, before he comes to understand the nature of the gospel, we could say that uh, he is the person of Romans 4, the one trying to work. And then afterwards, when he comes to understand the gospel, we could say that his life is then described by uh, what Paul says in Romans 4, the one not working but believing which leads us into our second point this morning that justification is by faith alone so as we look at uh, Romans 4 uh, verse 5 the first thing to notice is the language shift that Paul takes place that he uh, does here between verses 4 and 5 uh, between the one who works versus the one who does not work but believe. And Paul is he's using the exact same uh, words and word order, just introducing the word not. He's doing that on, on purpose to draw attention to the fact that he's making this contrast. So it's something he's drawing our attention to. And what's interesting is, is he writes, uh, now to the uh, one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. Earlier I had mentioned the Heidelberg disputation that Luther is at. One of the theses that he put forth at that disputation says this, He is not righteous who does much, but he who, without work, believes much in Christ. So we begin to see Luther's thinking is almost mirroring what Paul is has written in Romans 4, 5, uh, it mirrors it almost exactly in the, the type of uh, thought that he's putting forth. And it is this passage, Romans 4, 5, you know, I, would, I would encourage you to highlight it, underline it, circle this passage, because I think this passage should be right up there with you know, John 3, 16. Everyone knows John 3, 16. I would encourage you, this should be a verse that everyone should know because this is the hinge point upon which justification turns. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So this passage closes the door on any type of work salvation, and it shows us exactly what a true saving faith looks like. And the faith that is described here is simply the empty hand that reaches out 
in utter dependence upon another. It clings to the work of Christ. And it brings nothing in it but trusts solely in another. And a great example of this, we, we often sing um, many great hymns. And a great hymn that beautifully illustrates this is Rock of Ages. We'll be singing this shortly after. But there's a line in there where it says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That is biblical faith, perfectly expressed in song. Which raises a, a, a great point of application that we can sing these songs that are full of gospel-rich teaching, that are full of God's grace in saving sinners. And we can rejoice when we sing these songs. And the reason we rejoice is because we recognize as Paul described in verse 5, that it is the ungodly whom God justifies. It is the ungodly whom God has mercy on. When we were dead in our sins, God showed us mercy. This is, this is not the person that, that is full of excuses that I'm not as bad as this person or I'm not as bad as this person, but the per- this is the person who stands before a holy and righteous God and simply begs for the mercy of another. They realize that they can do nothing to merit their own pardon, and so they simply cling to Christ by faith. God justifies them, the ungodly. That is the heart of the gospel. We must believe this gospel, stand firm in this gospel. And so it is this man, the justified man, that Paul describes in the remaining verses of 6 through 8. This is the blessed man. Verse 6, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Congregation, if if you sit here this morning and you've turned from your sin and you are trusting in the finished work of Christ, then the, the person that's described in these verses, that is you. You are the blessed man of Romans 4, 6 through 8. That is every believer who stands in the righteousness of Christ. And verses 6 and 8 tell us two things about every believer. One, the Lord does not count his sin against him. And two, a perfect righteousness is counted to him. And this is all through faith, apart from works. Our sins have been covered, and we stand before God in the perfect righteousness of Christ. But I must also give a warning here, that if you sit here as an unbeliever, then you sit 
and stand outside of the blessings that are found in this verse, that you stand in your sins and continue to bear the, the guilt and one day that you will stand before a holy God and have to give an account for that sin. But the good news, the good news is that Christ has done what we could not. Come to Christ, flee from the wrath that is to come, for there is mercy found only in Christ, for on the cross he bore our sin and obtained a perfect righteousness for us. I pray that we would all come to realize this, this glorious truth that, that revolutionized Martin Luther over 500 years ago, and it is that the righteous shall live by faith. So as we conclude this morning, I just want to ask the question, of why, well, you may be wondering, why is this so important? Why talk about these solas? Why devote five weeks to discussing um, these reformers who are long dead? Uh, why do we do this? The reason we do this is because these solas represent and reflect the heart of the gospel. How can man have peace with God? This was the question that haunted Martin Luther himself. And we find the answer in Paul's exposition of justification that we've just looked at in Romans 4. And he begins to conclude his arguments in chapter 5. I would encourage you all to turn to Romans 5 and we'll look at just verse 1. Paul concludes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the gospel that Martin Luther sought to proclaim during the Reformation. This is the gospel in which we stand. This gospel, the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, brings peace with God. That is why this is so important. The religions of this world, the religions of man, cannot bring peace with God. They are all at their bottom workspace. They say, do this and live, pray this prayer, do this ritual, get on the endless treadmill of making works of satisfaction, and they can never bring peace peace. But Christianity, our gospel, is what God does. God is the one who justifies the ungodly. What we could not do because of our deadness in sin, Christ has done. Forgiving our sins and giving us a perfect righteousness. And by grace alone, through faith alone, we receive this free gift of salvation. This is the pure gospel of grace. Justification, sola fide. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this morning and we are thankful that it is not the one working but the one who believes in the God who justifies the ungodly. 
that you account righteousness to. Lord, that while we were dead in our sins, you made us alive with Christ. You have forgiven our sins and given us a perfect righteousness. And we can say with Paul that we are the blessed man. Lord, impress that upon our hearts. I pray that for those who may be trying to achieve a righteousness of their own, that they would forsake that pursuit and simply cling to the finished work of Christ in a simple faith of trust and dependence upon another. Lord, we ask that you would do this all for your honor and your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.